just as uh, we do take an offering, I'll invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Uh, as Steve mentioned, there were a couple others that started off this series for us. We're working through a series on uh, the parables, that, the stories that Jesus told. Uh, and I, I may repeat this in a minute because it's important, I think, but there's a lot of amazing things about Jesus, a lot of amazing things that he did when he came. One of the things that's maybe uh, sometimes overlooked is just how great a storyteller he was. I'm so thankful for that because I'm a, I'm a simple guy, and sometimes the, you know, the, the, the textbook, uh, master's level theology stuff, just forget it. I, I can't wrap my head around it, can't hold it in my hands, but, but Jesus told stories to help us connect. And so that's, that's why we jumped into this series for the summer. Let me, let me ask you this. Maybe, maybe you've noticed this. Maybe it's just me. Sometimes it is just me. So I'll kind of test you guys out here too. It seems to me that in, in a lot of different ways lately, it's getting harder in Canada, in the West, maybe especially, to be a Christian. It, it, it's, it's, it's costing us a little bit more. I mean, just looking at, at some of the, the news I read in the last week or couple of weeks, uh, we, there's an article that said that persecution of Christians in India is higher than it's ever been. And it's never been good for Christians in India. Uh, the list of countries that would identify, or maybe they wouldn't identify themselves, but are functioning as post-Christian, kind of the Christianities, we've been there, done that, we're going on to do our own thing. The list of countries that are post-Christian is growing, to the point that even uh, one of the last holdouts, the states, is now considered post-Christian. They joined Canada, we were long gone a long time ago. Values and beliefs that maybe were assumed when we were kids uh, or you were kids are now considered old-fashioned, out of style, out of date. And those are the nice words we're going to use for them. Churches in Canada and the U.S. are shrinking. You can, you can find stats and surveys that show that, that the number of Christians is going down. Now, with every stat, you know that you need to look at the sources and understand the data because you can make up a stat for anything. Our family growing up had this thing where we said 83% of stats are made up. And that one was always made up, of course, right? But what's been happening over the last number of years is, is the, the ability or the, the want for people to identify themselves as Christian is going down. So it used to be where, well, my parents were Catholic, and their parents were Catholic, so I guess I'm Catholic. Check it off on the, on the research. My parents are Christian, and their parents are Christian, so I'm Christian. We'll check it off. But now, it's starting to, to cost a little more to identify as Christian. It, it may, you know, it, it rubs people the wrong way. It, it, it may affect my ability to get a job, to, to all these things, right? So what's happening is that sort of mushy middle of Christianity is, is either going to say, no, I'm, I'm not Christian, or not religious at all. That's one of the faster-growing groups, is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the not affiliated. Or people are saying, okay, if this is true, I've got to do more than just check it off on the census data when it comes around and step into it. So even though, this is a bit of an excursus to say that, even though you can read stats that the churches are growing, many, or churches are shrinking, many are still growing. The question that gets asked when people are trying to decide, well, am I going to stick with this or go, is, is it worth it? Is checking off Christian on the box, is putting Christian on my Facebook profile or Instagram page, is it worth the social cost now to do that? 
And this really is an age-old question. I think the question of, is it worth it to follow Jesus, goes back to before the crucifixion. If you flip just a couple chapters earlier, in Matthew chapter 11 or Luke 15, we see a picture, or sorry, Luke 7. We see a picture of John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin. He probably, most of his life, had a pretty good idea of who Jesus was. Right? He knew who he was, John was, as the forerunner, the one presenting the Messiah. And in these couple of verses, in Luke 7 and, and Matthew 11, we see him sending a messenger to Jesus and say, Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we wait for someone else? Remember why he's in prison. He spoke out against marriage, ultimately. The king didn't like it, threw, it in prison, threw him in prison. No question, John knew he wasn't getting out of that cell unless he recanted or went back on what he said. So he is sending a message to Jesus. Jesus, is this worth it? Is sitting in this cell worth it? Is it the impending loss of my head worth it? Are you the one? This is an old question. Let me ask you another one again as we get into the stories and the parables that Jesus told. Have you ever opened up your Bible, flipped to a section, read it, and thought, I have no idea what any of that just meant. Couple, okay, was one. Perfect. Thank. This is a place where we can be honest. It's okay. I'm not. I'm not writing down names up here. Well, this is not. That's also nothing new, right? Jesus knew when he went to teach. If he taught the the straight ins and outs of law, it would go over people's heads too. So what did he do? He told stories. He told parables. Things that we could all place ourselves into that story and identify with. Now, let me give you a, a definition of parable that I think is helpful. A parable is a practical story, or maybe you could say a simple story. It's often formed as a comparison or a simile, if you want to get grammatical, something using like or as. It's a simple story, often as a comparison, to illustrate a deeper spiritual truth. Okay, that's what Jesus is doing when he tells parables. It's a simple story that we can put ourselves in that illustrates a deeper spiritual truth. So the last couple of weeks, uh, who can identify with weeds? Anybody got weeds in their yard? We went away for a couple of weeks, and the dandelions knew I was gone, and now they're back. Okay, so well, the parable of the weeds, I can identify with that. And then the persistent widow and the friend at night, the persistency of prayer. I think we can, we can put ourselves into those stories and, and have a better grasp of those deep spiritual truths, right? Well, there's a couple things that we need to do when we read parables in order to understand them rightly. A lot of this is just good Bible reading, but we'll go through this this way anyways. The first thing to do when you read a parable is to try to listen from the original hearer's perspective. Okay, listen from the original hearer's perspective. And this gets harder for us the farther we are from the first century and from first century Jewish culture. There's some things that were significant then that, that just aren't necessarily anymore. Uh, it's not impossible to do, though. Okay, It just takes a little bit of work the longer and farther away we are. But we want to listen and hear what the first hearers heard. The second thing we want to do when we read parables is we want to try to understand the main point. And there's usually only one. And there's a bit of a call out for preachers here, too. One point. One point. Got it. These are simple, practical stories, so there's not going to be uh, an A to Z of what to get out of one single parable. That's why Jesus told lots of parables. The other thing we don't want to do is we don't want to overcomplicate our understanding of the parables. If there's one point, let's not try to shoehorn too much in. I was reading 
uh, in one book, a, a guy was studying parables, and he said he found this description of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and someone had like 10 different things. Well, this is symbolizing that, and this is symbolizing that, and all these, and some of them were a bit of a stretch. Let's not stretch. The Bible's got plenty of things to say about plenty of things. In the parables, we're looking for one thing. And finally, we want to let the truth that comes out, we want to let that one main point shape us. We want to let it talk to me, not me to say, wow, Jesus said this 2,000 years ago, but I live in Canmore in 2022, and so I'm going to read this into the text because I am so much wiser than Jesus. If a parable describes a deep spiritual truth, honestly, it should rattle you. It should shake things up in your life a little bit, make you pause and think and say, okay, if this is what Jesus is calling me to, am I doing that? Hopefully the answer is yes, or mostly yes, but I suspect a lot in a lot of these, there will be some things that we all have to deal with. And so it's important to read all of the Bible, but especially parables rightly. Now, this morning, Matthew 13, we're going to read the parable of the hidden treasure and the priceless pearl. It's a two for one. I've been away for a couple of weeks, so we're going through two, but it's also only three verses, so take it for what it's worth. Let me read it for us, and then we'll jump in. Jesus teaches this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. It's like treasure buried in a field that a man found, and then he reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. It continues, Jesus does. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had, and he bought it. It's a parable. Actually, two parables. It's a simple story one verse and two verses, that describe a deep spiritual truth. So what do you think the question might be that's, that's being asked or that, that this is given the answer to? What's the deep spiritual truth? But let me suggest it's something like, how valuable is the kingdom of heaven? How valuable is the kingdom of heaven? Now this concept of the kingdom of heaven is one that's, that's woven throughout the whole Bible. Start to finish, we read about it. It can be defined as the redemptive rule and reign of God, and, and in the New Testament, Testament, the redemptive rule and reign of God through Christ. Matthew kind of hones it in a little bit, specifically posts, uh, points towards Jesus. So when, when Matthew is talking about the kingdom of heaven, that's whose gospel we're reading this in, right? He's talking about God's rule and authority through Jesus. And he especially points to the timing of it all as well. Matthew talks about the kingdom of, of being present. The kingdom of God is present. It's here. Jesus has come, and he started to inaugurate and initiate the kingdom. He, he, he has made a new way. That's, that's what he did. But there's also a future piece to it. Uh, the kingdom isn't fully here yet, but one day the king is coming back. And so you and I, we, we're living in this in-between stage of, of Jesus came to start something. And, and as we read the Gospels, he did amazing things. He gave sight to the blind. He, he healed people. He, he cast out demons. He did all these things, which were also pointing to deeper spiritual truths. But then he left, 
and gave us the Holy Spirit and the disciples kept, kept building the kingdom. But one day he's going to come back. And so we're living in this in-between time. And, and maybe the farther we get away from the memory of Jesus actually being on the earth, and it, it maybe makes us ask questions of, and is he coming back? I hope so. I believe it. Sometimes it's hard to see. But a question that comes up in the in-between is often, is it worth it? Is it worth it to wait? So let's get to the parables here, the two kind of two-for-one. The main point in both parables is the same. What did each one do when they, they found the treasure, they found the pearl? Because the question is, is how valuable is the kingdom? These guys sold everything for it, right? Note, uh, note the contrast in the two characters in the two parables too, right? We read in the first one that a man just was kind of walking through a field and he came across this treasure. He stumbled upon it. I don't think he was walking around with his metal detector, as some people do today on the beach. I don't think he was walking from one place to another with a shovel, just hoping to hit something, right? He was not planning to find treasure that day. But he tripped over the box, tripped over whatever it was, and found it, and he instantly knew, this is something. The other guy, we read that he was one, he was a merchant for pearls. He knew pearls. And he was searching and searching and searching and searching, and then he found it. Man, this can, this can describe two different ways. Let me give you a hint, too, here. The treasure and the pearl, it's the gospel, it's Jesus, okay? This can be two different ways that we find Jesus. There might be many of us, some of us in the room even, who, were, who did not want to find him. We thought life was going really well in our own ways. And, I, you know, I was, whatever, it was, life was working out. But then, man, Jesus got me. We hear stories of that all the time. Others of us, we, we knew that there, there was a, an emptiness in it, in us. And we tried to fill that, that emptiness, that longing for meaning and purpose and identity with, with many things, whether it was school or friends or career or pleasures or all the things. And finally, we found Jesus. Maybe we're somewhere along that path, too. But the contrast here, Jesus is telling a story that everyone who heard could put themselves in one of those two camps or somewhere in between. What did these guys do when they found the treasure? It's, it's fascinating. Three verses, we can get a lot out of it. The first thing they did was they, they recognized the value of what they found. They right away knew this is something I got to deal with. Then they quick knew they had to have it. They sold everything to get it, and then they got it. And those are kind of our four steps we're going to quick walk through. First, they recognized the value of what they found. Again, in the, in the treasure um, parable, we want to first listen from the hearer's perspective. I don't know about you, but I don't, I'll tell you this right now, I don't have any treasure buried in my backyard. Don't bother coming looking for it. You're not going to find it. But back in those days, there were no banks. There were no safety deposit boxes like we have now. And so people would bury their precious stuff in the ground, hopefully mark it, so they could find it again. So when somebody maybe went away on a journey, or when they were called and went to war, or when they thought war was coming to them, or when they wanted to just keep things safe, they would bury them in the ground. So this might seem like, why would this guy find treasure? It's not like, this was a real thing. The original hearers would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. Sometimes when people go off to war, they don't come back. Sometimes when people have war come to them, they don't make it. 
And so there may be treasure buried all over the place, important things to families buried all over the place from these things. This would have been a normal, relatable experience. Sometimes people would actually forget where they bury things. They'd, they'd place a marker and either the marker would get moved or the whatever would blow away. We were just away on holidays, and so we went to the beach one day, and the first day, always the first day, we go to the beach, and we've got two kids, and so one of them takes some of our little sand toys, digs a few holes, and buries them, marks them with an X, and says, Mom, Dad, dig at the X and see what you find. Now, I don't know if the other child went around and, like, wiped off the Xs, or just in the random walking and playing around the beach, some of these marks get washed away, right? So Jade, uh, one of my kids, says, there's three things. You can find them. And there's one here, one here. We found them both. We had to actually go pretty deep for one of them. But the last one was lost. We couldn't find it. The mark got moved. So now, someday, maybe already, at Cal Beach near Vernon, some kid is going to be playing around, and he's going to, he or she is going to stumble upon a toy lobster, and their day is just going to, be get, just going to get made because our mark got washed away. Sometimes people just stumbled upon treasure. Sometimes, as well, the value of what had been buried was lost. And so maybe it was, maybe it was grandma and grandpa's treasure that was no longer important. And so this wasn't necessarily like the guy was acting shadily and, and ripping off the landowner. Maybe the importance wasn't just as important anymore. If we bring this back to our day with the treasure and the treasure being the gospel, how many stories can we think of where the treasure was important to grandma and grandpa? It was still important to mom and dad, but you know what? It's not that important to me, so if you want it, you can have it. There's a number of reasons why this guy may have been able to acquire the treasure. And again, we don't want to dig too deep into these things. Jesus is not prescribing us to rip people off to get something. Okay? But he's telling us the value of the kingdom was worth selling everything to get. The second, second character in our story, the, the pearl Again, we want to listen from a hearer's perspective. I don't know about you, but I don't have too many pearls around my house. But if we walked into a precious rock and gem store or walked into a jewelry store, what is front and center everywhere? Diamonds. Pearls were the diamonds of the day. Okay, so if we're not listening from that, that first century perspective, we may not get it. Like, oh, pearls, are, I mean, they're nice, but... These are the diamonds of the day. This character that was going out, they knew pearls. He knew how to search for pearls. We, we read that in the text, right? He was, he was searching. He had seen good ones. He had seen bad ones. He had seen really good ones. That was what he was looking for, was the really good ones. But now he's found a priceless one. He knew the value of what he had in his hands. And so they both knew they had to do something about it. In both cases, we read that they sold everything in order to get this treasure to be theirs. Now, again, we can think of the parable and think of our day. Imagine they knew the value of this thing. They knew it was a priceless pearl. They knew it was treasure. But they started to think about, okay, what is this going to cost me? And instead of going ahead and, and joyfully selling everything to get the treasure, they thought... No, it's going to take a lot of work to liquidate my assets. eBay, like, who wants to deal with eBay to sell stuff? Like, 
maybe it's just not worth the effort. What if they thought, you know, I, this is a priceless pearl. This is the most valuable pearl I've ever seen in my entire life, maybe ever will see. But in order for me to get it, you know, I'll have to change some of my values and my lifestyle a little bit, some of the comforts that I've become accustomed to. I may not be able to live that way any longer. Can you see how this sort of ruffles us when we think about following Jesus too? What if they thought, well, you know what? My parents didn't raise me to sell everything for one little little treasure. Right? My, my parents might be really unhappy with me if I go after this treasure, if I go after just the, it may cause tension with my friend group. Maybe, you know what, it just, it, it just costs too much. I'm not willing to put in the effort. I suspect we can all think of people who have said something like that when they've been presented with the gospel. You know, I'm pretty comfortable the way I am. I have to change my lifestyle too much. The very real reality of this may cost me my relationship with my family. These guys, though, they knew that they had to have this treasure. And so then they sold everything to get it. Again, remember, a parable is a simple story illustrating a deeper truth. So don't overthink this. Don't think, okay, we have to sell everything to buy treasure from God. That's not a thing. The kingdom of God is a gift. But the characters in the parable, they did whatever they had to do to get their prize, whether it was the treasure or the pearl. They let go of anything that might have got in the way of them getting this. That's how important it was. That's how valuable it was to them. Now, Charles Spurgeon, uh, one of the, he's known as the Prince of Preachers, a, a great, well-known preacher from years gone by, he wrote a sermon on these verses, and he called it, I love this title, The Great Bargain. Sell everything for treasure, everything for this pearl, and let me tell you, I got the good deal. Love it. But he said, we need to sell off a number of things in our lives in order to get the gospel. First, he said, we need to sell off our old ideas about pleasing God to get his love, to get his favor. I don't know if that's ever been a struggle for you. Feel like, I got I to measure up so God will pay attention to me. Sometimes we get the, the order or the, the how we relate to God wrong. We put our, the way we deal with others on God. Maybe you grew up feeling like, you know, I've got I've to perform well enough to, to get love from my parents, from a teacher, from a coach, from a pastor, from whatever. And once I perform to a certain level, then they'll appreciate me. And so often we put that on God. So we need to get rid of that. We need to sell off. We need to liquidate any ideas that God needs us to be good enough for him because we're not. We also, he says, need to sell off our sinful pleasures and practices. Anything that's, that's in the way, and if we're not sure if something's in the way, the Holy Spirit is kind and often gentle, but not always gentle, to reveal those things to us. And so ask, what's in the way? What, what am I hanging on to that I need to get rid of in order to follow Jesus? The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 opens it this way and says, Therefore, let us lay aside everything that holds us back and the sin that so easily ties us down. What is it that, that's holding you back? What's, what's keeping you from fully embracing the kingdom? In our parables, our characters recognize the value of their treasure. They sold everything to get it. And now they went and they bought it. They finally acquired their treasure and their pearl. The important thing to note here is there is an active role. Coming to know Jesus doesn't just happen to us. We participate in it. 
uh, J.M. Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. He says, faith has three elements. First, there's the, the intellectual element. We actually have to believe that we're believing in some truth. Okay, in the parable, the guy knew the treasure was valuable and the pearl was valuable. They were believing in something. They intellectually understood it. But then there's also, faith has an emotional aspect to it, a heart to it. We're drawn to it. We start to learn that, that this relationship with God, this, this work that Jesus has done for us, will fill that longing in our hearts, that God-shaped hole that Augustine talked about. We're drawn to what we've recognized, to that truth. And then the third part is there is the, the, the choice, the commitment, the, the action step in all of it. We do actually have to make a move to commit to the one the gospel reveals, which is Jesus. I can know lots of information about Jesus. I can even understand emotionally and be drawn towards what, what a life with him will offer, but I can still sit still and ignore it. We need all of these things and we all need to work on this as individuals, but together to make our move towards Jesus and the gospel. So let me get back to the question after we've walked through this, my opening question. Is it worth it? Is the kingdom of God still worth it? See, this parable tells us that following Jesus, that the kingdom of God is worth losing everything for. Now we might lose everything on this earth, but we do wind up with the king. And so is it worth it? Let me give you a few examples. We'll start in Scripture because that's always a good place to start. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, I once thought that all these things were valuable, all the stuff the earth could offer, my education, my status, my popularity, all these, I thought they were so valuable, I pursued them better than anyone else. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. He goes on in verse 8 and says, Everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, which is a nice soft word that, that the translators have put in here for us, so that I can gain Christ. Everything else compared to Jesus is a better word would be like, like dung. Maybe even stronger than that. It's all stinky. Let's leave it. We can flip to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, if you're familiar with that chapter, we kind of call it the wall of faith, where we see the faith of so many people who have gone before us. And near the end of that chapter, the author of Hebrews writes this. He says, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long for us to recount all the stories of faith of Gideon and Barak and Samson and, and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice. They received what God promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the flames of fire. They escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to fight, flight. Excuse me. Women received their loved ones back again from death, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They, they placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at. Their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained, imprisoned. Some died by stoning. Some were sawn in half. Others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, is the conclusion. Was it worth it for them? 100%. Let me suggest as well, in every year, if not every month, if not every week, if not every day since Jesus was crucified, or a few days after that, people have died for their faith. 
The kingdom's worth it to them. Anytime we read missionary biographies, we read these, these, these heroes of faith, it's easy to say, well, it's, man, it was worth it for them. I, last, I think it was last year I read the biography of Jim Elliott, a man who grew up, and it's, it's worth reading his biography just to look at his prayer life. Forget everything else, which is also amazing. But here's a guy who knew that God was calling him to a, a tribe that had never heard the name of Jesus. He spent years preparing Years preparing and knowing he was supposed to go there and got there and got set up in, in South America. And then the first time they were close enough to like interact, they killed him. And that's the end of his story. That's not the end of the story, though, because his wife went down. Do you want to tell You can tell your story there. I like it. Like it. it was worth it. Hudson Taylor going to China. Missionaries, missionaries in Europe used to pack their belongings, forget suitcases, they packed their belongings in a coffin because they knew if I come home, this is how they're going to send me home. It's worth it. We just had coming through our church a few weeks ago the Epps, Daniel and Lisa and their kids, uh, who are serving with Wycliffe in, in Indonesia. Uh, they're working, he's working with airplanes so that missionaries can fly into remote areas and learn the language so they can translate the Bible into these languages so people can know Jesus. Now, you think it would be easier for them to live near family in Winnipeg, raising four little kids? A hundred percent it would be. But it's worth it. And I feel almost, almost bad putting my name on the list after this, but part of our story, myself and our family, we have moved away from home, born and raised in Edmonton. And after, soon after we were married, Naomi and I went and did a, a discipleship course in South Africa where we uh, kind of got to work through what does it mean to follow Jesus. And, and it was about a six, seven-week course. And, and one of the things that God told us while we were there, that we were confident that he said to us was, your time in Edmonton is up. So be prepared to move. Our families are, we're all still, all there. My whole family is still there. Now, it's only four hours. I'm not in the jungle. I, I get that, right? But would it be easier for us to be raising our two kids down the street from grandma and grandpa? Yeah, it sure would. But we believe we're called to follow Jesus here. So here we are. I'll encourage you as well. An author and writer in the States, her name is Rebecca McLaughlin, wrote a blog post right at the end of June, which, as you may recall, is Pride Month. And she wrote this brilliant post of, called People I'm Proud Of. And she lists a number of people in her circle that she knows, that she's friends with, that are, have struggled with what Pride Month celebrates, but have said, you know what? Jesus calls me to something else. And so I'm going to turn my back on that. And I'm going to follow Jesus instead of what the world celebrates for a whole month in June. Man, that's, check it out. People I'm proud of this month. Another story that came through my Twitter feed not too long ago was a 26-year-old football player for the Indianapolis Colts, Kahari Willis. He's, he's, he's the guy. I'm not a huge football guy, so I, I, gotta, I know enough to understand what's going on here. He was the safety that the Colts were going to depend on to be their starting safety for the next number of years. Young guy, 26. He's, a, he's about to sign a new contract with them, and he got a call from God and retired. No, no, I'm, I'm going into ministry instead. And the team was so gracious. There were 
comments from the coach, who no doubt was pulling his hair because now he's got to find a new safety, and the owner, who was ready to invest in this player for the next however many years. But they just don't, we trust that God will do what God's going to do through this guy. And we're not here to, to debate the salaries of professional athletes, but what has he left on the table to come lead a church? We don't, pastors don't usually make NFL player salaries, and that's okay. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. But was it worth it? It's worth it. Now, one of the hardest parts of preaching many weeks is the risk of sounding like I've got it all figured out, and I've got it all together, and I'm doing this really well. Because I don't. And I'm not doing this well every day. Not every day of our lives will be roses. Not every day is going to feel worth it in the moment. But we push on. And we need one another for this too. This is why we gather as the church on Sunday. This is why we encourage one another to gather during the week. That the, 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 the Christian faith is described like primarily as family because we carry one another through the times where we're not sure. When John sent the messenger to Jesus and said, Jesus, should I be waiting for someone else? When he's asking the question, is it worth it? Did Jesus just brush him off? No, he sent them back and said, it's worth it. It'll be worth it. Right? He gave him the message. So we need one another. Let me ask you this, and then I'll encourage you to you know, pull out your phone and scan that little respond QR code. If you're online, you can go to trinitycamwell.com slash respond. Just think about it. What's in the way if something's in the way? What, what, what are some of those things that are maybe holding you back from, from giving everything to follow Jesus? And if you're not sure, we can pray about that. And again, the Holy Spirit is so gracious and so often gentle in revealing those things that we need to deal with. And I would love to hear through there, uh, through that response form there, just what God's been saying to you. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you have grace and patience for slow-witted people like myself who may not understand the deep spiritual truths until you spell them out with a simple story that I can put myself in, that I can understand. I'm so thankful for that. And thank you for, for thankful for these couple of verses we've looked at today. I pray that you would reveal, even, even now, to me and, and to us, those things that are holding us back, the ways that we've said, nah, I don't know if this treasure is worth it. And help us to action. I pray that if, if we are like the one who stumbled upon treasure, I didn't even realize we were looking for you, Jesus, but, but now we've been presented with, with something that's worth our entire lives, that you'd give us the courage and boldness to step forward and step into it and, and find others around us to help us learn and grow. And if we felt like we've been searching again and again and time after time to find that pearl of great price, that precious pearl, may we rest in knowing that it, it's you. It's you. And we pray all these things, Jesus, in your good name. Amen. Team, would you come?